Welcome to the Triage Method podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you this week? I am positively fantastic, Gary. Like, life could not be better. We're still in lockdown, but the rest of the world also seems to be going into lockdown. So I feel like a lot of solidarity with the rest of Europe, at least. I know America isn't necessarily going into lockdown, um, but a lot of places in Europe are, especially our our British uh, brethren there, they're also in a lockdown. And they do also seem to be a little bit more, uh, the fitness industry over there seems to be a bit more cohesive. Like they actually like battle the game. What the, I can't even talk. They actually battled. I'm welling up here, Gary. You know, uh, they actually battled against the uh, the lockdown for you know fitness centers, gyms, and lost. Yeah, and lost. But at least they did it. Like I'll respect that. You know, you don't you have to respect that shit because we just rolled over and did nothing. So, well, we did. Lots of other people put in a lot of effort to try and you know have their voices heard and stuff. Yeah, but it wasn't as cohesive, man. They got a tank in Britain. <laughs> Like that wasn't happening in Ireland. I'm just, I'm just saying. Okay? Like, yeah, okay, cool. We signed a few forms. We like, you know, oh, whatever. Like, Parliament, please don't shut us down. You know, so put our emails onto it. But they brought a tank. You know, well, Ross there's levels. There's levels. Wrote a letter, and he's a tank in my eyes. <laughs> that was the, a terrible joke. But at least Ross did do that. But anyway, look, that's completely beside the point. Gary, what are we talking to make today? We're talking um, about primarily, like we'll end up talking about fa- fasted exercise, I think. But the broader topic is the fact that burning fat is not the same as losing fat. And as a result, diet or exercise interventions designed to you know, lead to more fat burning or more fat oxidation do not necessarily result in the body composition changes that you think they might. Yes, and there's a lot of nuance around this. That that's why we wanted to do this episode on it. But what prompted <laughs> this uh, this episode was effectively I don't know if it's a if it's a question or a comment or whatever. But I'm going to read it out now because it's actually it's quite funny. Um, um, well, I presume this was in jest. Like Jesus, if this guy was serious, he needs to get like help. <laughs> anyway, so. This person on our YouTube channel, on a previous video that we did on this like years ago that Larry Doyle was in um, who, back in the day when he was jacked. Um, so that's the context. <laughs> anyway, we're talking about fasted cardio for fat loss. Fat loss? Fat loss. Um, anyway, this guy says, it has no benefit. Yeah, right. Studies, mate. Okay. Um, <laughs> except it does have benefits. I wouldn't take advice from someone who has no muscle, two skinny boys, and a bodybuilder. Okay, like literally, Gary, no, sorry, Larry even weighed about 110 kilos. <laughs> Probably had about 18 inch arms at the time. But anyway, look, wouldn't take advice from someone who has no muscle. Anyway, fasted cardio releases fat to use as energy. Okay, so just remember that thought process because that's that's probably something that we will come back to in this video um, or podcast, I should say. Um, then he goes, the same way keto works, right? So again, we're talking fat oxidation here is what he's talking about. Yes, because we talked about routine in that video, just as an aside. Yes, routine works. But if doing fasted cardio has no food source in your stomach, then wouldn't it go to fat? Right, I presume he means like, you know, like your body would go to fat as the food source, not like 
it would turn to fat. Um, <clears throat> what energy source would it use then? Muscles. Haha. <laughs> Muscles are not the best source for low intensity cardio. So fat is the energy. So fasted cardio uses fat for energy, thus fat loss. Okay. So that's, that's the comment that prompted this, uh, this podcast, right? And first of all, any astute listener or astute um, person that knows anything about health and fitness or whatever would notice, first of all, that there are actually three energy macronutrients or sources. There is like glucose, fat and muscle, which is protein. So for, I don't know why, but they just assume that there's no glucose in this situation, which we will come back to as it is quite relevant. But uh, it's not like it's either fat or muscle. Like, and it's not even like fat is the first thing that it would tap into. It's like there's, there's also glycogen here, you know? Um, so all of that is important. But basically, what's the story, Gary? Because they were, they were just talking. And it's pretty convincing. Maybe not the, the passive aggressiveness, but the, it's pretty, pretty convincing in terms of the thought process of like, okay, if I upregulate fat oxidation in terms of like, you can look at these studies and do a certain intervention or do a certain diet, like, you know, keto dieting, like they mentioned, and fat oxidation goes up, you know, we'll, we'll call that like fat use, right? Goes up, like you're burning more fat for energy, right? With these different modalities. And again, we'll touch on a few of them later on, but fat oxidation goes up with these different modalities. It's a logical, you know, next step to think that means that fat loss is going to go up because you're burning more fat, right? That that's logical, Gary, isn't it? Like in my mind, I, I know it's something that I thought previously that, 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 that is the logical next step. It's like, oh, these modalities or these diet principles or patterns or whatever lead to more fat oxidation. Therefore, that does lead to more fat loss over time because fat oxidation is what we want. It's beta oxidation is what we want when we are losing fat. Like, it makes sense, doesn't it? It does at, at first glance, okay? And, and this is something that is really important that came up in some of our, our writing in, in the coach's corner today even, and that is that to understand the effect that's going to occur like as your end outcome. So in this case, your end outcome is a change in body composition, okay? So an actual change in body composition in terms of the amount of fat that you have in your body. You can't just take a snapshot of any one moment of what is happening and get an idea of whether or not you're moving closer to that outcome because you have to be able to look over 24 hours, over multiple days, over multiple weeks to see what's actually happening, like overall fatty acid flux, for example, overall fat burning and overall fat storage. They're the things that end up mattering. And when you start to look with that level of granularity, things get a lot more complicated, okay? So the first thing I think to, to get here is that like anytime that we kind of, challenge a thought process like this on the podcast we're generally doing it because there's quite a bit of truth to what's being said like there's no point in us coming on here and talking about what dr oz said you know just, that's dumb like anyone can go to the trouble of debunking that stuff with like a google search but the thing the thing here that's interesting is that a lot of this is actually true so what he's saying is that when you exercise in a fasted state um you actually use more fat for fuel and that is true. What tends to happen when you exercise in a fasted state is you preferentially use uh, fat for fuel. You burn that fat. But the thing is, like, when we say fat, 
it can come from multiple like different areas of the body. Like it's not, it's not necessarily that when you're oxidizing fat, that that's coming directly from um, body fat, like subcutaneous adipose tissue. So the fat that you'd be concerned about losing a lot of the time, what's actually happening is it's coming from intramuscular triglycerides. So there are these um, little fat depots that are located within your muscle tissue. Um, so, you know, you might've seen like, very simple diagrams of what muscle tissue looks like and it all looks nice and really organized but the reality is that there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the muscle cells that isn't necessarily captured in a simple diagram and that includes things like intramuscular glycogen stores intramuscular triglyceride stores so that's important to get because it tells you that your muscles have access to fuel locally so it has access to fuels that are already going to be available. Um, so just on that, like if you want to have a visual representation of that, well, it's to, to an extreme. Like if you look at like really marbled meat, you know, like, mm-hmm. you get like a steak or something that has a lot of marbling, like it has that fat in between the actual muscle itself. Now, that's sometimes a genetic thing that those animals have like, you know, more intramuscular storage and also it's like they they obviously different muscles than we do so it can look like it's more marble but it could actually just be you know different muscle structures but that's just the uh uh, a visual representation if you think of a marbled steak or whatever you know it's a cross section of a muscle and it's like oh there is fat throughout this yeah that's a good point so that's a good way of thinking about it is like just think about those marbles in your lovely ribeye steak for example and that's what we're talking about here so you have those local fat depots from which you can pull um, and that can help you to fuel your exercise then the assumption is that because we don't have as much carbohydrate or glucose available we haven't just eaten a meal we don't have it dripping into the bloodstream and that we're gonna you know use another fuel source and often like it is a consistent finding that when you exercise in a fasted state, you do use more fat for fuel. So it is, it is kind of as simple as that. Like at first, first glance, you use more fat for fuel. Um, however, it's, like it's just on, on top of that, yeah. this obviously also changes with the type of exercise that you do. Cause we're kind of, we're kind of thinking of this from the fasted cardio. I'm like, just to kind of preempt that when we say fasted cardio, a lot of people are doing fasted cardio. Basically it's low intensity cardio. So more aerobic cardio, like people even do like just, fasted walking in the morning like i know a lot of bodybuilders do that in terms of they're like i'll do an hour of walking or just a a very low incline walking uh, on the treadmill just to like again get the heart rate up get some calorie burn and then obviously get this hopefully potential benefit from this increase in beta oxidation this increase in fat oxidation this increase in you know fat utilization during that time but it does change if we are doing more like anaerobic stuff or if you're doing more like even though it's kind of straddles some borders um of these different energy systems which we've talked about before and if you're doing more like resistance training stuff like there are differences so we'll kind of confine the conversation to the aerobic stuff because it's easier to discuss and then we can maybe layer on some context yeah um and i and i and i think like it it is obviously important to just like briefly mentioned that like if we're talking about performance here like you should be eating before like that's just that's just kind of a simple thing that if you're trying to get the most out of your cardio particularly if you're moving towards the higher intensity stuff that patty mentioned um then yeah like eating before is going to be beneficial because you're actually concerned about performance so generally what we're looking at here is some sort of fat loss outcome the idea being that because we're burning more fat for fuel we're oxidizing fat for fuel that we're then going to lose uh, more body fat um, so that's typically how people are approaching it however what you tend to, what you must think about then is 
particularly, I think it's, it's nice to think about this as it relates to like a low carb or ketogenic diet, for example, because the logic is, is kind of a bit clearer because people will say, for example, that if you follow a ketogenic or a low carbohydrate, high fat diet, that you burn more fat. Um, which is true, you do actually oxidize more fat for fuel, you're going to be using more fat. Um, and you can measure that with things like respiratory quotient, like you can basically breathe into something and it'll tell you whether your metabolism is, is, is shifted more in the direction of carbohydrate oxidation or fat oxidation. So you do see those very real changes. But the reality is that you're, you're, burning, you're burning a lot more fat, but you also have a lot more fat in the diet. So this is a good, a good kind of way of thinking about the kind of balance between what you burn and what you store because what, what ends up happening is that you've also got a lot more fat coming in through the diet that's able to replenish any fat that you have oxidized so you're able to you know synthesize those triglycerides and pack them away um, once again even if you have burnt them and that's why we always when we discuss diet we bring it back to the principle of energy balance because in that case of the low carbohydrate high fat diet you're burning lots of uh, body fat, okay? Are you yeah? You're burning lots of fat generally, um, and then you're storing uh, all the fat that you're eating again, or some portion of the fat that you're eating, let's say, but not so much that it's going to compensate for the fat that you've oxidized, and as a result, you end up losing fat. But that's only in the case that you're in an energy deficit, so that your body actually has to use a surplus of fat um, from your stores. Um, and in, then, in the case of exercise. Um, in this particular context, what's happening is that you can actually have compensation after the fact. So let's say if we both get up in the morning, um, Patty has- before, before, you go on, before you go on to that, I think it is just really important to just reiterate what you just said, right? In terms of actually understanding that. Like the fact that your fat stores, or sorry, your fat oxidation has gone up like transiently, that is irrelevant in the grander scheme of the day. You know, and that obviously brings us on to what you're going to talk about now. But just really, that's this is the crux of the whole thing. It's like this transient increase in fat oxidation. It's kind of meaningless unless we look across the whole day, right? And also in the context of where your calories are for that overall day. You know, where energy stores or you know the energy flux is for that overall day, right? Because that 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 is the absolute crux of this whole issue. And while obviously the, the stuff you're going to talk about now in a second is important, like if you think and you get nothing more from this podcast, right? And you just realize that, okay, fat oxidation is gone up because of this intervention, whether it's a keto diet or a low carb diet, high fat diet, or fasted cardio, or you know, aerobic cardio in general, you know, whatever it is, whatever the intervention is that you read and goes, someone's telling you, oh, this increases fat oxidation and therefore you get more fat loss, right? It is completely irrelevant if we only look at that time point, right? Like you can make so many mechanistic arguments and be like, this is really important, this intervention, this whatever for fat oxidation, when you look at like the time point of doing that exercise, right? Or that intervention or whatever, right? But you have to look at across the 24 hour cycle, which Gary's going to come on to something also very important with this, but you have to look across that 24 hour cycle, like what changed with fat oxidation across that 24 hours uh, other than what would normally happen, right? Um, and then also you have to look at it in terms of energy balance, like this energy flux, you know, like I always kind of think of it like stock rotation. You know, if you've ever worked in a shop or something like a, I know your super value, your Tesco's, whatever, right? Like you're going to be constantly getting new stock in, but you want to make sure you sell the old stock. So you're going to use the old stock before you 
bring out the new stock. Like that's just, you know, this, you don't want stuff going out of date, you know? And that's kind of the same stuff with this fat oxidation. Like you might get an increase in fat oxidation, right? But it's kind of irrelevant because you've stock in the background, you've more the same amount of food coming in. So that's going to be replenished and it's going to be then sold and replenished and sold and replenished if we're at calorie maintenance, right? But obviously there's a situation where the stock you're getting in is not enough to repel, replenish the stock that you sold. So now the, the stock of that item, even though you're doing this uh, stock rotation, it, the stock starts going lower and lower and lower and lower because you don't have the replenishment coming in, i.e. food coming in, right? And then obviously the converse can happen, thinking of this like stock rotation uh, analogy, like you could be not selling this stock, right? But you're still getting a load of stock coming in. And that would be a calorie surplus. So you've still got all this stock that has to be stored somewhere, you know? And again, that's what happens. It gets stored, you know? So that's the way I kind of think of it. You have to look at it, first of all, across the total day, like what's happening across the total day, but then also in the context of energy balance, right? Because that does change a few things, which we'll come on to further again. But Gary has something also that further uh, changes the situation. Yeah, and, and there's actually a number of things that you, you should consider here. Like the first one is that, like, let's say you did burn more, like I burn more fat within my exercise session in the morning than Paddy did because he had breakfast and he had fuel available and I need to just dig into the fuel that was, that I already had stored. And right, my liver glycogen has been depleted overnight uh, because I've been fasting for a while. So I don't really have as much uh, glucose available. I'm digging into more fat, right? That's fine. I'm using the fat that's available to me. But then what happens as the day goes on, what tends to happen, um, at least in the so some of the evidence that's available on this, is that you actually get a compensation effect. So I've burnt more fat early on, but then I go and have my feeding and I keep feeding throughout the rest of the day. Um, my meals are kind of closer together now than Paddy's will be because he already had his one before. And what tends to happen is that I actually end up burning less um, fat, oxidizing less fat for fuel throughout the remainder of the day whereas Paddy will be oxidizing a little bit more than me. So when you look at the balance across the course of the day, then we actually end up on similar playing fields, provided our calories are equal, body weight's equal, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not to say that there's always going to be this perfectly like equal compensation necessarily, which is why even 24 hours doesn't necessarily tell you the whole story, but it means that there's going to be a compensation over the longer term, that things just tend to even out anyway, on the basis of your overall energy intake. So that's kind of the key point here. And I think like that's something we don't really think about because we don't necessarily need to think about it, but our dietary composition like can vary like all the time day to day. I know mine does unless you track rigidly like your specific carbs, specific fats, all of your exercise then there's days where you're burning more um, fat for fuel. There's days where you're, where you're burning less fat for fuel. And overall, it's the energy content of the diet overall and your overall energy balance that ends up dictating the trajectory of your body fat stores over the longer term. So as a result, simply saying that you burnt more fat during an exercise session doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to um, lose more body fat overall, unless, of course, that exercising in that state um, allows you to manage your overall appetite better, for example, um, or maybe it just uh, is a nice way for you to get in more exercise. So the fact that if you exercise before breakfast, it gives you more time, blah, 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 you know, the scheduling thing. Um, 
then that, that again could be contributing, but these are kind of more so indirect effects rather than, than direct effects. So when you're, when you're zooming out and you're thinking about the overall kind of balance between the fat that you've stored and the fat that you've burned, I think the vast majority of any effect of the specific fat burnt during a session is going to get washed out. And I mean, that, that's kind of easy to understand in the way that like when we have clients come to us for coaching, we don't tell them to just do really light exercise because it oxidizes fat for fuel. Clearly that wouldn't be a great call. Um, and, and, and I think like if you were to take that logic um, to its end, you would end up saying that you shouldn't exercise too hard because then you just burn carbohydrates and that's not what we want, you know? But the reality is that if you were to do, let's say, your really hard exercise session in the morning and yeah, you're not burning um, as much fat because it's harder and maybe you've eaten before, but you've also depleted lots of energy stores um, and you've increased your metabolic rate for a certain portion of the day, for example, particularly if you're really fatigued and you've been doing really high intensity work. So again, your, your metabolism is modified thereafter, after the session. So it's not as simple as just measuring what's going on within the session. So, so yeah, overall, um, I don't think uh, it's going to have a major effect, to be honest. But with that said, I think that's something we've discussed before, Patty, is like how in a bodybuilding pop, population, you can sometimes make the case that there's at least, um, you know, hypothetical mechanistic speculation. I think that even in this, in this case, I think one of the difficult things is that if you were to even study it, like you wouldn't even notice a statistical effect size because the effect size you'd need in this particular study is, is not necessarily at the same level of relevance to a bodybuilder. Like if we're talking about bodybuilders, right? And they're the population of interest, then any potential edge that they can get in terms of leanness, even if it's the most slight percent of a percent, it actually matters to them because it's actually the end goal is for them to be as lean as possible. And I think you can make a theoretical case that if someone is exercising in a fasted state and they're already like, let's say 5% body fat, so you have veins all over your body at this point, um, that uh, digging into local um, body fat stores in a particular area, for example, if you're digging into those for fuel um, or you're just burning more fat preferentially during an exercise session, maybe very subtle differences um, might, actually, might actually be helpful. But Again, I think, um, I think that's something that's like interesting to speculate on me mechanistically. And I think that, you know, if I was a very high level bodybuilder at very low levels of body fat, maybe I'd consider it as an advantage. But the thing is, even in that case, and I'll let you add anything you want in a minute, I think you also have to consider that there might be a trade-off then of you potentially digging into more muscle mass. Okay. So there's basically no biological free lunch here. The idea is that if you want to spend more time in this kind of catabolic state where you're exercising in an absence of fuel and you're already at a point where your body doesn't want to get rid of more fat because that's your justification. You're saying that I want to exercise in a fasted state because I recognize that my body is going to, doesn't want to lose any more fat because I'm struggling. So I might try and get a bit more out of it that you're also putting yourself at the risk of potentially um, oxidizing amino acids for fuel and digging into your muscle mass uh, during that period as well. And like, I think, that's something we don't have a, that level of granularity of evidence for. Um, and I think I'd leave that in the hands of the bodybuilder or the bodybuilding coach to, to make the decision of the trade-offs really. Um, so I don't think there's a best answer there, to be honest. Yeah. Like I, basically what Gary's saying is, and the concept is pretty straightforward. Like basically 
when we do this fasted cardio or we do these interventions that lead to more fat oxidation, like as I said, that's, this is why I think of it like a stock rotation. Because while we think of our fat, like you touch like fat on your body, you think of it as like a static thing. It's like, oh, it's stored there. It doesn't get touched until it's gone, basically. But that's not necessarily the case. What happens is like it gets used here, like this little bit gets depleted in this area and then it gets refilled and then it's depleted. So it's not the exact same, like we'll say atoms, if you want to think of it like that. You could think of it in terms of molecules. It's not the exact same stores you know it's constantly being rotated now in some areas this gets rotated more than others you know and whereas in other areas and this is generally where people find they have like stubborn body fat they'll be like oh this this gets touched last you know and even if it's like this gets touched last in terms of when you're losing fat it can still be experiencing this flux like it's not the exact same fat molecules in those stores right so that's something to understand with this when we actually discussed the, the, what Gary is saying here in terms of you could make a mechanistic hypothesis in terms of why fasted cardio might be beneficial for a bodybuilding population, right? So if we are getting this kind of fat flux, we'll call it, right? Where it's like our body fat stores are constantly filling and unfilling and filling and unfilling and like it's not the exact same fat molecules in these stores, right? Like, as I said, it's a stock rotation, right? Um, you can make a very strong mechanistic argument that if we are down in these low, low levels of body fat, right? You want to tap into those stores. You want to potentially even tap into stores that are stubborn, right? And potentially, again, mechanistically, we could make an argument that, you know, maybe getting a little bit more blood flow to those areas. So again, you can make this mechanistic argument in terms of, um, like spot reduction of fat, you know, it's like, do like say your glutes are not, shredded and you want them shredded it's like you have like two millimeters of fat on your glutes and you only want one millimeter it's like you could make a maybe potentially make a mechanistic argument for doing stuff that gets more blood flow to the glutes so that you know the fat stores that are being used are in the glutes right and you can make a mechanistic argument for that now that's completely irrelevant in the context of someone who has we'll call it normal body fat levels because like there's easier, like as much as you want it to come from your glutes, your body's like, well, I've far easier stores elsewhere. Like I don't, I don't care. But when you're talking about like everywhere else on your body is fat free and you, you only have this little bit of fat left on your like hamstrings and glutes and stuff and you want to get rid of that. It's like, okay, maybe then we can make this mechanistic argument to push towards this. Um, but again, thinking of the stock rotation, you can make an argument that in the context of a calorie deficit, right? So we are definitely in a deficit of energy. So fat loss is occurring, but also we could maybe say that like potentially some muscle loss is occurring. Glycogen is all, glycogen loss is obviously occurring. Like you're still going through that, et cetera. But uh, you can make a mechanistic argument that you're going to, or you're going to be able to push towards liberating these fat stores in this, this tissue, whatever area it is that you want. Again, like we'll say the glutes, the, the lower abs, whatever it is, you can make a mechanistic argument that that's going to be the case. If you do fasted cardio, you're going to liberate it from these stubborn areas. Um, and then you're going to burn it because you're in a calorie deficit rather than if you didn't do the, the, the fasted cardio and you didn't increase this, uh, fat oxidation, you know, you would then maybe burn a little bit more muscle versus like say that you're, you're trying to shift the proportion of burning muscle to burning fat. But as Gary said, that also is a fine line to straddle because 
you effectively are saying like, oh, I want to preferentially burn more fat than muscle. But to do that, you're doing something that, yeah, it increases fat oxidation, but it also potentially increases like amino acid oxidation or like muscle oxidation. So it's like you're on a razor's edge here, but like that's, that's the, that's the, that's the razor's edge you have to play if you're a high level bodybuilder and you're like, I literally need to be a 0.05% leaner than I currently am. And also this is the problem with making mechanistic arguments, right? Like we can make that mechanistic argument, but we could also make a mechanistic argument that would be unbeneficial for what we want. Right. And what I mean by that is we could argue that we have just increased the fat oxidation, fat deposition machinery in those areas by trying to liberate the fat from those areas, right? So we can make an argument that as soon as calories go back up, you're going to store more fat there, you know? So we could make that argument, but that's not necessarily something that you want. And people have this, this, this thing they do when they look at mechanistic arguments where they go, oh yeah, that, that's a favorable mechanistic argument. That's, that's something that I like. So I, I believe that one, but this other one, Nah, nah, I don't, I, 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 no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to listen to that, you know? And it's like, you, you kind of have to, you kind of have to listen to both sides of the argument and go, hmm, is this something that I want to do? Um, and for a lot of people, it isn't. Now, just on top of that, because I'm sure you have some other points to say, Gary, um, there are also like pharmacological, we'll say, interventions that could potentially even exacerbate or enhance, I should say, these these processes. For example, a common one that's used is using something like uh, yohimbine, you know, yohimbine HCL, uh, either orally or even topically. Although, although top, topically, I, I have to, I haven't looked into it enough to conclusively say that it is as effective as orally, um, but it is something that potentially could be used, right? But anyway, so yohimbine HCL. Um, I'm not going to get into the mechanistic stuff, um, but that potentially does lead to uh, more liberation of the, the fat in these areas, depending on the receptors. The, the, yeah, I'm not going to get into the mechanistic stuff. Um, it's irrelevant for this, for this discussion. But basically, you could say, okay, maybe in the context of fasted cardio, because with Yohimbine, you also need low levels of insulin, right? It, with, it, with the context of fasted cardio and Yohimbine, and low body fat, we could be like, okay, cool. In this context, maybe we could argue that it's going to lead to a benefit. But even then, it's like for the vast majority of people, this is completely irrelevant because they're not getting down to the level of body fat that this is going to show any benefit for, right? Like they're not getting down to these like super low body fat levels of a bodybuilder. They're like, oh yeah, I'm at 15% body fat and I want to get down to 12% body fat. And in that case, it's like, this is, all of this argument is completely irrelevant. Like it realistically does not matter whether you eat a low carb diet, high carb diet, low fat diet, low or high fat diet, whatever, as long as you're controlling calories. Like the difference between 12 and 15% is so minuscule in a physiological sense that like it's, it's kind of irrelevant. Like you can just do anything as long as you can, as long as you control calories and you're getting sufficient protein and obviously, you know, you're looking after recovery, training, all that other stuff that comes along with it. But presuming that's all the same, like this, this looking for, oh, this, this training method has an increased fat oxidation or whatever. It's like, it's, it's irrelevant for the vast majority of people. And it's only relevant for bodybuilders in the context of, I want to get down from 6% body fat to 4% body fat. You know, it's like, that's, that's, 
realistically such a small subsection of a subsection of a subsection of a population that I don't even know why we recorded this podcast, except for the fact that people do look at that and look at the mechanistic arguments that you could make for a body bo- bodybuilding population and then put it on a population that is at 20% body fat where it's just completely irrelevant. Yeah. And I think like, the, I think the important thing for people to get as well is like, I know sometimes you can listen to these conversations and like take away what you want. Like you can be listening and you can say, they said there might be a reason to do it. So I'm going to do it 100%. Like we're, we're making a mechanistic leap that is speculative for an extreme population. So like, we're not even saying that it makes any difference at all, you know? Um, so don't even, don't even take that leap to be honest. Um, but what I was going to say, um, I think like something that is worth bringing considering as well is like, and this is very much an individual thing. I know people don't like it cause it's just softer, but you have to consider your own behavioral response to the way that you set up these things as well. Like an example of that would be, if you go to the gym in the morning to do your cardio, let's say, and you know you're one of those people who like you hang on to the railing of the stairmaster and you just kind of slog along and you hate it. And if there's any opportunity for you to cut it a few minutes short, you're doing that and then you're out in the car and you're sluggish. Like think about the difference that a, a decent meal and a strong coffee could make to that. You know, you, you're just you're just kind of casually slogging along, not really putting much effort into it. And I mean, if you're keeping your overall calories the same throughout the day and you put food before a workout and you put more effort into that workout and as a result, burn more energy in that workout, then that has to be considered in this picture as well. You know, so like just looking at the fuel substrate that's used as opposed to the overall energy expenditure and the effort that you put into the session, you know, you're kind of missing a big part of the picture there. So that's important to consider. And then the other part of that is not just what you're burning, but also your subsequent meal that you have. Because what can sometimes happen is that if you're someone who tends to have a big increase in appetite after aerobic exercise, let's say, you know, it does vary between individuals. Um, but if you're, if you're one of those people and the second you get home from the gym after your morning exercise session fasted, you're absolutely ravenous, you know, and you're eating way more than you normally would, or you find yourself picking. And again, that has to be considered. Okay. Um, so you have to think about like, how are you actually responding to the intervention? Is it causing you to be hungrier or less hungry um, and put in more effort or less effort, etc. Um, so yeah, that's just something to consider. And then one more thing I think that's important is that, you know, you can, you can make the case here, I think for like, we have, written and i believe discussed this before as well but like there is more to exercise metabolism than just the changes in body composition obviously okay like firstly the acute effects if you're eating more carbohydrates you're going to perform better okay it's, it's fairly simple across most types of exercise eating carbohydrate before tends to improve performance okay that's that um, that's clear we've discussed that in the podcast before but another part of that is that the what you eat before a session and the fuel sub, fuel substrates that are used actually modify subsequent signaling and as a result potentially adaptation and this again is kind of one of those areas where we're kind of we kind of end up making mechanistic leaps okay so there's there's a good enough body of evidence to suggest that performance Performing like endurance exercise, for example, in a fasted state leads to more of the um, molecular signaling that would indicate endurance adaptations, things related to mitochondrial adaptations, mitochondrial biogenesis, etc. Um, 
so you've, you've, you've got that mechanistic evidence there. However, the body of evidence that actually suggests that makes a significant difference to performance is a bit more, you know, it's, it's definitely less steady um, and less well built so far. But um, from listening to um, one of the, the main researchers in this area actually discussed that body of research because it's basically like his baby, you know, he loves this area. And what he was saying was that, look, I work with very high level athletes, okay? If it, if, if it makes a 0.1% difference for them, it's basically like the bodybuilding conversation. Like we probably won't see that in a study, but if it makes a, even a slight difference for them, I'm all on it, let's do it, okay? Um, so that type of kind of carbohydrate periodization type approach is something that is built into some endurance training and has some promises there, I think. I think that's something that's just worth noting here. That, you know, the signaling that takes place in response to exercise does depend on the substrates that are available. Again, is that relevant to the vast majority of people listening to this conversation? Probably not. You know, I don't think it's that important. I think, like, again, another area where that does kind of come into things is, you know, people will make the case that, well, if you are exercising in a fasted state, then isn't that potentially good for people who have poor metabolic health? So for example, diabetics or people on that spectrum of insulin resistance where, you know, they're, they have poor glucose uptake as it is, you know, wouldn't it be good if they could, you know, use more um, fat for fuel during exercise? Because what we do see is that type two diabetics, for example, they're less able to dig into those marbles, those intramuscular triglycerides that we discussed. They're less able to kind of use those um, during exercise. So as a result, that's where something like the concept of metabolic flexibility, your ability to use multiple different fuel stores, where that might come into the conversation, where you know if someone is getting used to um, exercising in the absence of immediately available fuel, that that might help their metabolic health. And you know, again, there is some evidence to suggest that that might be the case. But what I would add in there that's really important is that, look, the vast majority of people don't exercise. So let's start with that, okay? Most people don't exercise and most people don't exercise enough, okay? So that, that's kind of an important thing to consider. Um, and then another thing there as well is that, look, look, while you can make that nice case that like this might be good um, for um, blood glucose control. There's also some evidence that, that suggests that people um, who are insulin resistant, who exercise in a fasted state versus a fed state, they actually tend to have a little bit more dysregulated blood glucose throughout the, main, the remainder of the day. You know, why is that? You know, maybe it's because their meals are closer together. Uh, maybe it's because there was more of a, a hit to their metabolism that they weren't used to or whatever. Um, but yeah, there is that. So all I would say there is that we don't exactly have... <laughs> a very clear body of evidence that tells us that like all oh, facet exercise needs to be a part of your routine. If you're this person, this person, or this person, I think you can make um, speculative cases um, in multiple different situations, but um, overall I wouldn't be, you know, resting my hat on any of them as being very strong. One area where there does seem to seem to be um, some research or at least a hand, less than a handful of studies really um, is when people are overfeeding um, if you are overfeeding, it does seem like your glucose tolerance um, can be preserved a bit better if you are spending some time and exercising in a fasted state. And that's, that's with cases where people are really overfeeding by like a 30% calorie surplus. Like we would never really recommend that anyway, like that your surplus would be that large. But, you know, and, that, and that, I think that kind of makes sense. Like if you think about it, like if you're constantly in that way overfed state, 
you know, spending some time where you're at least burning off some energy and you don't have as much fuel in the system. Like it's, it's a time where you are um, in, a, in an acute deficit. So, you know, you might expect your glucose tolerance to be preserved a little bit as a, as a result of that. But overall, I think you can kind of see that I'm kind of clutching at straws trying to play devil's advocate. <laughs> yeah, like there's a few things on that. Uh, first of all, like with the, the diabetics, it's like this is also something that you kind of touched on earlier on as well, where the rest of the day can be impacted by the choices you make in the morning in terms of like, even just from a perspective of like, you would call it your niche, you know, like your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Like you could just be tired from having done exercise in the morning. And as a result, end up doing less we'll call it exercise over the total day right so like a lot of the time we're talking about this we're talking about it in the context of someone who is somewhat controlling for that stuff yeah. but a lot of people just aren't so you can have a situation where you train earlier in the day you do your exercise and then the rest of your day you're just um, i'm not I'm, i sit down more i'm tired i'm not i don't have as much energy and you know, like i'll just sit around you know and that can lead to less fat loss over time, even though you're like, I'm doing my fasted cardio, but because now you're not doing as many steps as you normally did in a day, you lose less weight, you know, versus the friend, the friend who does their normal steps for the day and then does their cardio in the evening. You know, it's like there's this additive, whereas yours is like, you just, you, you leveled off because you were tired from doing your cardio. And again, conversely, you can have people that it really sets them up perfectly for the day where it's like, I do my fasted cardio. I feel nice and energetic after it. I feel like I'm woken up and then they're moving around a bit more. So it's like, this is like, even though it's a softer thing, like you said, it's like a, your individual response to the exercise intervention. It's like this stuff does impact down the line, you know, and we have to take in the overall context of the individual um, when we are discussing this stuff. And this is also important when you're talking about the effectively like that kind of train low, compete high type of training and um, where we're looking for like mitochondrial adaptations and whatever else. It's like that stuff also makes more sense when we're in a surplus overall, you know? So if we're talking about fat loss, it's like they're not the same adaptations that we're looking for. Like, yeah, those adaptations are potentially beneficial for future fat loss. You know, if you had those adaptations, like more mitochondria, et cetera, it's like, yeah, that would potentially make fat loss easier down the, the road. But you have to think of like mitochondria as the same way you would think of muscle building, you know, well, it, it's, it's different signaling and stuff, but like, it's the same kind of concept. Like you need substrates, you need, you know, building blocks to build these mitochondria. That's not something that you're going to be uh, as effective at if you are in a deficit, right? Even though you do get still get these mitochondrial adaptations, especially like in terms of um, like proton leakage and stuff like that. But that's beside the point. Um, you're going to get these kind of train high or train low compete high adaptations faster if you are at least at maintenance or into a surplus, right? So this is not as relevant, even though obviously these stuff or this stuff makes sense from uh, a mechanistic stuff for performance, like you have to take the overall context of the individual and the overall context of the diet and the adaptations that you're trying to elicit into account. It's not as simple as saying like, oh yeah, I train low and then I you know, eat more for my competition and I'm going to get all these mitochondrial adaptations and whatever else. It's like, it's not necessarily the case, especially when we take into account like all of the, the vascular adaptations that occur or we would look to have occur. And it's like that stuff, again, it needs energy. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum where it's like, oh yeah, there's no energetic input for this. I can actually just be in a complete deficit and it's all good. Now, again, that's not to say that like angiogenesis or whatever just shuts off when you're in a deficit. It doesn't, but 
again, it's like this, this stuff does bear understanding, you know, like it, it, or it does bear keeping in mind when you are designing a, a protocol for someone. And as you can see, like there's a lot more to this discussion than just like, oh yeah, it's not a case that we've got an increase in fat oxidation and that'll lead to an increase in fat loss. It's not a case of, oh, that's just completely debunked. You know, that's just not a thing, right? Because there is some truth to the the concept, but it's like, this is in such minuscule situations that this actually matters. It's like, for most people, it just doesn't matter. And yeah, it's cool for us because like both of us really like our physiology, our biochemistry, our fucking health and fitness, whatever you want to call this stuff that we like, right? But for the average person who's like, oh, I just want to lose a bit more fat. It's like, you don't need to be thinking like, oh, well, maybe if I do uh, an hour of cardio in the morning before uh, my work and then I come back and do weights in the evening. It's like, that's, yeah, okay. If that leads to an increase in calorie burning throughout the day, it's like, cool. Like that might be what you need to do. Maybe you're a, a very small female and you're trying to lose body fat or whatever. I don't know, you know? Um, but for most people, it's like, that's just, it's just calorie manipulation that's occurring. It's nothing inherently magical about the fasted cardio you're doing in the morning like yeah it might set you up nicely for the day in terms of again it's a it's a, a thing that gets you out of bed gets you up gets you awake you have your shower before work or whatever it is and it's like yeah cool i'm ready to to get going um but for most people it's like that's just a, a habit type thing or a uh, a scheduling thing you know and this is especially true if you are training twice per day you know, like I know I train twice per day. Well, not now because of the, the Rona, but like when I'm doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, it's like some days I, tra- well, four days a week, I train twice per day, you know? And so I'm going to have to schedule my training in the morning. So that's just the way it goes, you know? Um, and just on this whole thing and then on my own personal experience, like I actually do fasted cardio twice per week, you know? So like, that's my bias. And it's not for any increased mechanistic, you know, oh, uh, this is potentially leading to better fat oxidation and better metabolic flexibility or whatever else. Literally nothing to do with that. It just fits my schedule nicely. And I like having my meal after, like I'm up for a, quite a good portion of the day. And I like having my food after training. Like I also don't eat before my resistance training in the morning. Do I think that that's the most optimal approach for everyone? No, but again, it fits my schedule and it's like, cool there we go. You know, I'm not, I'm not thinking too much deeper into it. You know, like my aerobic capacity is already better than the vast majority of people, you know, and for my sport, it's in a great place, you know? So I'm not looking at like, Oh, well, maybe if I get uh, 1% improvement, I'm like, I'm like, it's, I'm already more aerobically fit than everyone else, not everyone else, but you know what I mean? It's like, everybody david goggins eat your heart out and um, you know what i mean it's like i'm not like i'm not competing in like the boston marathon or something where i'm like oh i need to you know reduce my time just even a few fucking seconds is like the difference between first and second place it's like no it's like my aerobic capacity is definitely not the limiting factor for the fact that i am shit at jujitsu like that's <laughs> that's not the limiting factor for me you know so even though i do aerobic work twice per week and it's fasted it's not any mechanistic stuff uh, other than the fact that it fits my schedule and I enjoy it, you know? Yeah. Um, like I think, like I like to think that I'm, I'm like, like you say, like interested in the kind of exercise physiology, exercise biochemistry stuff. And I like, I think it's, I think looking at the difference between like fasted and fed responses is like, 
fascinating and I think particularly like the I think the train low like PDI stuff is really interesting but again like I wish I could say more about it in a concrete way you know in that like I wish it was the case like it is my bias I wish I could say that oh there's a massive difference when you exercise fasted because again I enjoy it you know anytime I go for a run I much prefer doing it fasted I hate running after eating something um and like you know even even jiu-jitsu I really like training jiu-jitsu on like an empty stomach I just feel much better I feel lighter I do notice that I don't have that same gear to do as many rolls if it was like a really hard session i would feel better if i had some carbohydrates on board so again there's like always a trade-off like how do you feel during your sessions how serious of an athlete or trainee are you because like i mean what i say to the vast majority of my clients is that as we begin to talk about these subtle things about what you should eat before a workout and everything we're talking about very small differences and honestly i'm far more interested in what like makes you feel good going into the gym than what is necessarily optimal. If you're someone who's chasing optimal, you're an athlete, then I care less about how you feel, like within reason. Um, but like we're, we're obviously thinking, okay, like what is actually going to, you know, allow you the best response physiologically? You need the fuel available. You can't get around that, you know. Um, but people people do need to feel like they're doing something that is that is a good approach for them as well. Like I think the last thing you want is like if someone says, I love having a meal in the evening, I find my diet really hard to adhere to otherwise, I'm not going to give someone 60% of their calories in the morning before their workout <laughs> just so they get the best fueling in because realistically, it's going to make adherence throughout the rest of the day really, really difficult. And I think to get back to the initial question, I think that's why so many people do really enjoy doing fasted cardio when they are you know, on that kind of bodybuilding or physique prep thing, you know, they're more focused on body composition because it's just more time where you're not eating and you have something else to keep you occupied. So as a result, you have less time than to fit your limited meals into. So if you're already on low calories, you know, and you have your first meal at 5 a.m., it's a long day, you know, after that. Whereas if you're doing, if you get up at 5 a.m., have a coffee, do a bit of work, then you go to the gym at seven, you're home at eight, you cook your breakfast and you're having it at half eight, that's actually a big difference now. You, you've got a, a shorter window of eating, so it might make your life a bit easier. Again, depends on the person. Yeah, and like we can get into some like complex neurochemistry stuff and make all these mechanistic arguments in terms of why like all oh, facet cardio is absolutely the best way to you know energize yourself for the day and it's like keep you awake for like you mean like orexin and you know all of these other like we'll call them hunger hormones and wakefulness hormones and well whatever else but ultimately at the end of the day it's like this like it's not like you are going to be assessing this stuff other than the fact that you're going to be going oh uh i do fasted cardio and it keeps it makes me feel energetic for the day that's something that i might do in future again it's like that's like we can go in depth on the uh, neurochemistry stuff and i'd like to say we could go more in depth on it but i actually think neuroscience is fake so we won't be doing that um, <laughs> but uh it, it ultimately it comes down to the fact is like you will notice whether this is an improvement or a, a negative for your day in terms of your mood might be better or worse or you'll feel more wakeful or whatever else right and then also whenever we're talking about these different like minutia of oh well maybe this might give you a a one percent or half a percent benefit and i'm like like if you're realistically looking for that kind of stuff just do trend like just do steroids it's like they're going to give you a 50 percent improvement it's like there's like if you're if that's the thing that's like oh man i'm going to willing to change my entire lifestyle around i'm going to get up earlier do an hour of cardio take that hour off like potentially making 
you know, money or living with my family or whatever the fuck else it is. Like if you're like, I'm an athlete, I'm like every other athlete is on drugs. So you might as well. Right. So that's the perspective I look at those. I'm not saying that that's a perspective that you should necessarily take. Um, but that's my kind of perspective. I'm like, if you're really digging into the weeds to maybe potentially find this, you know, oh, this esoteric, like, oh, this half a little percent thing. It's like, just do drugs because they're going to give you a far, far bigger percent. Right. And that's not my recommendation, just in case anyone's uh, wondering, but that's my thought process on the thing. I'm like, there's definitely bigger things that could be done. And this is also the case for the average person, like the average person will sweat over like, oh, I have to get my fasted cardio in, but they're not sleeping eight hours per night, which is realistically probably more important, or they're not doing any stress management, or they're not doing, uh, like their, their training is not effective. Like they've, they've never actually talked to someone about how to set up a, an effective training program. Like it's haphazard. Like they haven't done the big things. They're just focused on this like minutia of, oh, I need to fasted cardio. That's what I heard. That increases fat oxidation and increases fat loss. And it's like, you don't even know what a calorie deficit is. Like this is, this is so far away from what you actually need. It's irrelevant. Yes, sir. So do you not, do you uh, reiterate my uh, do drugs uh, policy? Oh yes, that's uh, now our policy at Triad. (laughs) I did want to add that I know we have at least one listener to the podcast who's doing uh, or nearly finished a PhD in neuroscience. So if you ever want to come on and challenge Paddy's, <laughs> Paddy's flipping statements about neuroscience. You, being fake. you couldn't do it though. Cause all I'd have to say is blood brain barrier. And then they'd be like, oh, oh, oh. they just get real scared when you say that. Paddy just thinks all neuroscientists are just like the same. You're all just one person. You all think the exact same. I, I actually don't in case people are wondering like Obviously. I have to say that my uh, supervisor in fourth year was in neuroscience like I actually did my project because I was wondering my dissertation basically in neuroscience and um, so I did biochemistry so I'm going to represent biochem not this this fake neuroscience we're just <laughs> scared of the blood brain barrier outside of that think eyebrows and above that's all they care about no thanks <laughs> Neuroscientists also uh, study the peripheral nervous system. You know, yeah. look. All I have to say then is like lymphatic drainage, and they're like, "Oh, what? Didn't know about that for the last fucking hundred years of this science." <laughs> <laughs> Leave them alone. Right. Anyway, yeah, we'll come back to this in like uh, ten years when I'm doing my uh, PhD in neuroscience while working as a neurosurgeon. And Your fourth PhD. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. And yeah, look, we've, I think that we've exhausted that question. Look, the, we've, we've actually mentioned this many times on, on the podcast before, to be honest, we have discussed these topics in passing, but we haven't had a, a specific podcast dedicated to it. Look, overall, I think that your justification for doing fasted exercise should very much be a practical and a personal one. Um, I think that's the strongest case you can make. Again, it's more boring. It's not as sexy. It's not like giving you a specific biochemical pathway, specific specific biochemical pathway that you're like driving up and this is the key. Um, Things always sound sound nicer when they're framed like that, but unfortunately that's not the case. Um, 
again, look, there might be some speculative cases to be made um, for like bodybuilding populations. Um, again, I'm kind of, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have more granularity of like exercise and fuel substrates and maybe how that might uh, help in certain disease states. But to be honest, like, I don't think we have um, enough evidence to make any like hard conclusive stances there. And again, I always come back to the very practical point that most people don't exercise enough. Um, if they do exercise, they probably don't do both resistance and aerobic training. So before we worry about specific fuel substrates, I would like everyone to get to that point um, first. And to be honest, that even includes like personal trainers as a side note, you know, lots of people are into their weight training and just do very little cardio. And I think there's, there's gains to be made there if, you're, if you are concerned about longer term health. I think there's something to be said for that for sure. Um, and similarly, you know, if you're a runner, you know, you, you, you're likely to benefit from taking up a bit more resistance training. Again, assuming health is the goal. If you're an athlete, health isn't the goal. You know, simple as that. If you're an athlete, your goal is performance. And as a result, you might have to accept trade-offs in other avenues. But Such as trend. Such as trend. Um, yeah. So look, yeah, if, that's the thing. Like if you are a professional athlete, I mean, other people are going to be willing to do more than you. So, you know, you got to get in the game. But yeah, we triage method, we do not endorse um, anabolic androgenic steroids or other performance kinds of drugs. Um, but uh, yeah, there you go. Um, we don't have anything else to say. I don't have anything else to say. Gary, where can people can find us? Uh, folks, if you are a coach, that was folks, F-O-L-X, by the way. Um, if, you're, if you're a coach, then you could join the Triage Method Coaches Corner. Okay, the Coaches Corner is uh, a platform designed to support the development of coaches and trainers um, in their education in a, in a way that is practical. Like, that's the main thing is that the vast majority of the content we put in there is not really theory. Like, well, it is. It's theory, but it's very much in an applied manner. Like, even when we're discussing things that are more theory based, I guess you could say, like the anatomy, for example, it's always bringing it back to like, all right, why does this actually matter? Like what, how does this relate to exercise? How does it relate to injury? How does it relate to movement analysis, etc.? And that's how it's, yeah, it's diving deep into the theory. Like maybe not even deep, I wouldn't say like, it's just diving into the theory so that we can lay the, the, the groundwork for a bigger or a deeper dive into the actual application of that. Like we all just have to get on the same page of like, this is the baseline anatomy or physiological process or health process or whatever it is. And you don't need to necessarily know all the ins and outs of it. You just need to know the application and how to interpret that information when you're actually talking to a client, that kind of stuff. Like we just had a, an entire discussion, like whatever this is, an hour or whatever, um, on the, the minutia of fasted cardio, you know? Like that's not necessarily the point that every single coach has to get to. They don't have to understand all of that stuff, but they definitely have to understand how to help the clients in front of them and make better decisions. And that's ultimately what we want to do with the coach's corner. Yeah. And like, I mean, like you say, it is about getting everyone kind of on the same page. Like for example, if you're a coach and we're chatting and I'm saying, you know, right, let's, um, let's, let's analyze the, the sumo deadlift. Okay. We've got, um, hip abduction, external rotation, hip flexion. That's our starting point, blah, blah. Here are the muscles that work as a result. Then that just sounds like that makes no sense. You've got a basis in anatomy. If you've got an understanding of anatomy, then when I say external rotation of the hip, you're able to visualize that. You're like, okay, I know what it looks like before I even see the exercise. And as a result, I'm able to, you know, derive from first principles, 
what exercise, what muscles are likely to be working, what are going to be the prime movers, etc. Um, and I think just having that like first principles knowledge of exercise and of nutrition is just so incredibly helpful. It doesn't mean you can solve all problems, but there is really a lot to be said for just knowing your very basic subjects and being able to, to work through problems from there. And I think your clients appreciate it too. Um, I often find that with people is that when you explain to clients, you know, the, the different muscles they're working and why they're feeling something in one part of the rep, etc., they actually really appreciate it because it kind of takes the, the guesswork and the uncertainty out of it. You know, sometimes someone might say, you know, I'm feeling my shoulders working after my bench press. I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. And, you know, it might just be that that's because the shoulders work in a bench press and it's, that's fine, you know, and explaining that to people can sometimes give them some comfort. So I mean, if you're interested, it's actually really important yeah. as well. Like being able to explain the fact that like your lower back works on a deadlift, you know, cause you will feel yeah. the lower back yeah. and like, Oh Jesus, I'm fucking about to explode out my spine here. And it's like, you should be able to explain to them, why this is okay and why these muscles work what what their role is what their stabilizing role is etc like even like their actual like contraction role and um, like you should be able to explain that stuff to them and even though exercise is very intuitive like scratching the surface a little bit more and like you said understanding first principles like it actually makes exercise even more intuitive you know um, and that obviously really helps your client because if you have a more intuitive understanding of it you can then explain things to someone who doesn't necessarily have the the framework of the anatomy the physiology whatever else like because you're able to if you have a deeper intuitive understanding because you understand those those first principles then you're in a far better position like someone can just show you a movement and you can be going okay that's these muscles working that's this is in this position here it should be in this position here these are the the little cues that i can give this person like it makes exercise so much easier uh both for you and then obviously to coach it yes sir so yeah if you are interested in the coach's corner you can subscribe uh below you'll also be added to um our facebook group where you can ask us any questions request content engage with us even present your own like coaching case studies or whatever. If you have problems to solve, like that's, that's what we're there for. So get involved. Um, if you're just interested in working with us towards your own goals um, on a one-to-one on -a -one basis online, then we do have online coaching spaces available. So we'd be happy to work with you. Um, you can get in touch below. The information is below. And if you'd like to ask further questions, of course, you can reach out as well. That's no problem. Um, we do also have a newsletter. So you can subscribe to the newsletter below. You can also join our free Facebook group, the Triage Method Community, or you could follow us on other social media platforms. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, YouTube is recommended as well. Um, subscribe to the YouTube channel and you get access to um, not only like the vlogs that we post, but also the podcast episodes. And uh, importantly, I think if you are a coach, we have a whole exercise library there that you're more than welcome to use. Like, you know, if you need videos to send to your clients or whatever, like they're there, get stuck into them, you know? Um, so yeah, get involved. And I have nothing else to say, except I hope everyone has a phenomenal week ahead. And I know we're coming towards the end of November, is it? And now we're only halfway through November. So a good few weeks left until Christmas, but I uh, hope it goes well. I really do hope that we do actually get to have a Christmas in Ireland and it's not just shut down. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, peace out, guys. <laughs>